Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. Welcome to another edition of Radio Islam. This is your host, Tariq Alameen, and we are broadcasting on WCEV 1450 AM, streaming live at WCEV1450.com. For those of you who are new to the Radio Islam family, we welcome you. Thanks for tuning in. We're on every day from 6 to 7 p.m. Central. You can keep up with us, with us on social media by following us on Twitter and Instagram at Radio Islam USA and by liking our page on Facebook at Radio Islam USA. Now, if this is your first time, you want to go ahead and subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your app. So if that's iTunes, TuneIn, Google Play, or SoundCloud, you'll find us. We're at, once again, at the same username at Radio Islam USA. All right, family, for those of you who want to call in, you might not want to tweet at us or DM or post on our Facebook page. You can call at 312-750-1178. That's 312-750-1178. Radio Islam family, um, the week is almost over, um, and it's happened really quickly. So tonight, we're going to just jump right in. Uh, tonight, <clears throat> we're going to be talking uh well, I'll tell you what to expect. So we're going to start off, we're going to talk about the elections, uh, recent elections in Pakistan and how that's being uh, portrayed. And and our second half, we'll talk about uh, the anti-violence march that's taking place over on the Lakeshore Drive, moved all the way over to Wrigley Field. And we're also going to take a look at um, Sarah Sanders, Sarah Huckabee Sanders' refusal to not designate the press as an enemy of the people. So starting off the program, we're going to be joined on the phone by Janaid Ahmed. Uh, he is a director of the Center for Middle Eastern Politics and is assistant professor at the University of Lahore in Pakistan. And we're going to be talking with him about the recent elections in Pakistan. Do we have him on, on the line? Uh, yeah, I'm here. All right. Assalamu alaikum. How are you doing? Assalamualaikum. Salam. Good to be with you. Yes, yes. So, um... Yeah, so we've recently had elections in Pakistan. Imran Khan was the uh, was 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 the winner, but has yet to be, um, I guess, sworn in. Um, yeah, as coronated as the official uh, yeah. prime minister. Yeah, uh, but but um, it, in all likelihood, he he will be. Um, he um, the opposition that had, uh, in fact, the entire opposition parties that were. Crying, crying a foul at the way the elections had uh, turned out and were complaining of rigging and all of this. Uh, now they've quieted down. And even uh, the individual that he was really going after, particularly in the uh, politically powerful province of Punjab, mm-hmm. um, uh, Nawaz Sharif, he, uh, even he has conceded that okay. uh, uh, Imran Khan okay. has won. Right. So talk to us a bit about, uh, for those who might not be um, up to date on the political climate of Pakistan, uh, the, the younger generation, uh, Imran Khan, he resonated particularly yeah. with them as a sign of uh, moving away from corruption of the past or this uh absolutely yeah so talk a bit about the 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 inspiration uh that he represents to them oh yes i think that point is crucial in the explanation for the phenomenal rise of imran khan and his uh political party the pti Mm -hmm. i mean movement for justice the tiri now 
the, the country either has been ruled by uh, military, the military, mm-hmm. or it has been ruled by civilian, quote-unquote, Democrats who make the military look good. <laughs> so, <laughs> okay. uh, I mean, th- that has been, in, in some ways, the tragedy, the curse of the country's history, mm-hmm. that even when civilian politicians have managed uh, to, quote-unquote, restore democracy, um, what we have had is effectively two political parties, uh, the one of the Bhutto family, the Pakistan People's Party, mm-hmm. and the other of the Sharif brothers, themselves a creation of a military dictatorship of the 1980s, mm-hmm. uh, who dominate the Pakistan Muslim League. These two parties basically playing musical chairs with each other, one coming after the next, and looting and plundering the country, doing nothing for the people. Mm. Uh, This has been uh, the situation throughout the 1990s. You had a brief interlude with the uh, coup of General Pervez Musharraf, and again I say, when he came to power, no no one was protesting because it made no difference to them. and he lasted to 2007. And once again, uh, it's uh, PPP, Pakistan People's Party, and PMLN coming to power and uh, showing no deliverables to the people. So PTI, the, the political consciousness had really started to emerge uh, during the end of the uh, Pervez Musharraf period in 2007, where young people not only wanted democracy this time, mm-hmm but wanted uh, substantive democracy that offered social justice and that crucially looked at issues of foreign policy and wanted Pakistan not to blindly follow every you know dictation that it gets, either from Washington, D.C. or from Riyadh and Saudi Arabia. Right, right. Um, <clears throat> can you speak a bit to the uh, the relationship between, because you said there's been this Uh, this vacillation between military rule and civilian rule, but how Mm -hmm. there has been a a relationship that has not really been one um, that has really empowered the people. Um, Yeah, absolutely. Uh Yeah. So moving forward under, under the, the future, the leadership of Imran Khan, uh, where he has, um, he has inspired this, this younger base. Um, Is this Uh something that, that the military is they are also uh, is this going to be transformative for the relationship with the military and 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 his civilian administration right one of the major complaints of of the opposition parties is that it seemed like the military establishment as they like to call it it's the, the the boogeyman for these parties now was kind of on the side of imran khan cleared the way for imran khan and so he's obviously on on uh, uh, good terms uh, with them because uh, we should understand any analyst of Pakistan that yes, the the military does play a very very important role in its uh, in its political life, but particularly on issues of national security and foreign policy. Sure. Uh, so Imran is on good terms um, with them, and but I don't think this is out of some type of uh, cunning, uh, you know, our, our, our trickery in trying to trick the popu- uh, population into something. 
I think that this is paralleling uh, developments that are taking both internally as well as uh, geopolitically in the region um, on which the, the military and Imran Khan pretty much see eye to eye. Mm-hmm. That is, you want more stability in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. You want to deepen relationship and trade ties with China, which is investing heavily in Pakistan. Mm-hmm. And you don't want uh, to receive uh, dictation uh, by um, a country that whose war on terror has caused so much damage in the country. So I think there there's a confluence of interests mm-hmm. uh, between the military high command and uh, Imran Khan's political agenda. Okay. Now speaking on as far as the uh, the responses to the war of, war on terror, uh, and Imran Khan has uh, voiced opposition to the way that that has been. Um, administered the way that's been uh, um, the way that's played out. Now, the can you talk a bit about the United States response to his uh, vocalization uh, to that? You know, um, trying to basically um, looking are they looking to paint him as an as a pro terror um, uh, leader? Yeah. Right. I mean, I think that, uh, honestly, the reaction of uh, Western media to Imran Khan's victory, I mean, even before he got elected, uh, was just hysterical and and embarrassing. Um, you had headlines in the Washington Post of uh, Taliban sympathizers, the new leader of Pakistan, New York Times. I mean, these reputable newspapers saying, you know, unpredictable leader ahead of nuclear-armed Pakistan coming to power. Right. Uh, whereas, you know, you would think you're, to- you're talking about a Kim Jong-un or, uh, <laughs> if I may say, a Donald Trump. Right. But, you know, this is a guy, Imran Khan, uh, incredibly articulate. He went to Oxford. He was the famous cricket star. He lived in England for many years. Mm-hmm. He has given, uh, you know, generously, he has given interviews to all of Western media. They know his positions clearly for like at least 10 to 15 years now right. on, on, on all of these matters. And so I think that uh, right now you, you see the, the crisis isn't, with, uh, with Pakistan or with Imran, the crisis is actually within the West itself that they are unable uh, to fathom the fact that an independent uh, nationalist kind of candidate has come to power that is no longer going to be, uh, you know, dancing to the tune the way uh, Pakistan used to do uh, during the Cold War. Right, right. So uh, from their standpoint, speaking of the, the, the Western powers, uh, United States, you know, being among them, of course, uh, they have been used to using Pakistan and other uh, other nations in, in the region, Pakistan, and India, right. um, as surrogates for their attempts to um, subdue or, or attack. Well, uh, pa- Pakistan specifically. And yeah. I think that um, the, the issue with uh, Pakistan is that we have to recognize that it was part of the broader uh, architecture of control that uh, the United States and uh, Israel and Zionism mm-hmm. tried to set up in the Middle East 
to protect the conservative Arab monarchies and the uh, and their crucial oil resources. Right. And one of the ways they devised to do that throughout the Cold War was to support non-Arab uh, regimes on the periphery to kind of be the mercenary force to keep these regimes in power, attack dogs, you know, uh, on, uh, on demand. And you had Turkey from NATO, hmm. you had Iran before the 79 revolution, you know, the Shah of Iran, and you had Pakistan, and it's a very formidable military. Right. Now, they lost, quote-unquote, lost Iran in 79, uh, but they w- still wanted to depend on Turkey and Pakistan. And, now the, and, and, and so when we hear these labels of unpredictability, it has nothing to do with the, these leaders being irrational, but it has everything to do with these, le- with these countries now deviating from the script that they were supposed to follow uh, since uh, World War II. Right. Do you, do you think that it's interesting uh, or ironic that the United States under the Trump administration has espoused much more of a nationalistic um, ideology, um, it, it, particularly with regard to trade and its own foreign policy, uh, to see that mm-hmm. they are pushing back against a, a nation now where they have a leader who is, who is who's basically saying the same thing, that you can't come in and just right. do what you want to do? Right. I, well, I mean, I think that uh, the, <laughs> the, the, whether it's Donald Trump or any other leader in the United States, uh, yeah. they are not alien to having double standards when it comes to these types <laughs> of things. So, yeah. what, you know, what, what, what may be good for us and in terms of protectionism and so on, which I really don't even think is good, but uh, it will not be good for uh, for others. And in fact, his whole notion is that his nationalism now in uh, uh, I'm talking about Trump yeah. now entailed in the trade wars is in fact trying to balance out remedy rectify what's been happening before so uh, I think that uh, there are certain uh, characters individuals uh, and countries that perhaps you may tolerate some form of uh, Nationalism. Clearly, the Israelis are one of them. Yeah, right. Uh, people right. say Putin, you know, and and, <laughs> and 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 is one of them. But I'm not even going to go into that. But because because it's that's become almost a, a laughable matter because U.S. policies towards Russia are still pretty dangerous. Uh, right. That's not. Um, but but yeah, Netanyahu in Israel is one of them. Maybe Modi in India uh, and all of these other characters, but. But the the crucial difference there is that their quote unquote nationalism mm. uh, do, does not harm the interests of U.S. Uh, corporations, U.S. financial capital, um, and and the American elite in general. So they they kind of work hand in glove together. Or the U.S. Pakistan, war machine. Whereas Pakistan right now mm-hmm. has a relationship that is far closer to China and Chinese. Uh, moneyed interest. Right, right. And, yeah, and I also mentioned that it also does not impact uh, the U.S. war machine or the, uh, d- the military d- uh, industrial complex. Um, That's right. So um, can we also talk about how the discussions of the border plays, or Pakistan's border plays into this, as um, there has been, 
at least there, I don't think there is a, a clear understanding of the uh, of the difficulty in managing uh, and managing uh, population movement uh, within right. that border. Uh, could you talk Absolutely. a bit about that? Absolutely. I think, in fact, on both sides, one can say that now. Now, I think uh, a discussion on this issue uh, cannot happen without mentioning probably two things. One is, of course, the uh, perennial rivalry with India uh, and crucially on the issue of Kashmir. Uh, and that's on the you know eastern front, and on the western front, it's the uh, really ca- uh, catastrophic, disastrous uh, U.S. NATO war in Afghanistan, which has spilled over into Pakistan. Yeah. On the Kash- on the Kashmir issue, I think we have to see it in light of what I was saying earlier. One of the things that is uh, an, uh, really annoying. Uh, and angering the Pakistani population is the way that uh, the U.S. is now fully courting U- India um, as its partner, partner in crime, right. and containing China, uh, giving it access to all sorts of weapons, including um, allowing it to develop its own nuclear weapons and and using its bases. So their relationship has been, it, you know, elevated to. And the umpteenth degree, while while the U.S.'s relationship with Pakistan has been downgraded, and so and so that uh, allowed uh, India for the first time ever in 2016. Uh, pretty much, people are convinced that Washington gave India the green light uh, to and authorized it to actually commit surgical strikes within Pakistani territory. Mm-hmm. Um, which has never been done before. Right. Um, and so and India then loudly proclaimed our st- strategic restraint policy is now over and we are free to strike into Pakistani territory whenever we want. That was in Kashmir. So that's very dangerous. Right. On the eastern front with, with Afghanistan, you know, it, people have little idea of how the terrain of that looks like because it has always been such a porous terrain um, the Pashtun tribes have been going back and forth all the time. The, uh, it was, in fact, a colonial division uh, line that was created called the Duran Line mm-hmm. under the British. One of the reasons they did it is because they could not control the, the Patans, the Pashtuns, in their totality. So they thought maybe if we kind of divide them, we, we, can, uh, we can conquer them. But it has not worked. And so trade and uh, and uh, travel has always happened very porously. These are mountainous regions. You can't just kind of put up a barbed wire or fence mm-hmm. to, to close this uh, to close this border. So that's been kind of very irrational, and people have not been able to understand that. And the final thing I'll say is that the the uh, the problems in Afghanistan, the failed occupation. Now we have to remember, your listeners that this is the longest-running war in U.S. history yep. uh, going on. People, we forget it. It's not on the screens all the time. But in Afghanistan, on a weekly basis, you will hear of bombings, this, that, and it's, and it's really tragic. Um, and, and on top of that, you'll hear that, oh, and by the way, that 
uh, those terrorist Taliban we were fighting, they now control about you know sixty percent of the country, um, <laughs> and and of course the scapegoat from the very beginning for all of this is Pakistan, right. because Pakistan provides a safe haven to some of these groups. Uh, this is why they are able to perform uh, so well. Rather than looking at it, the incompetence, the arrogance, and the corruption of a failed occupation engaged in ma- massive mm-hmm. uh, military slaughter, you can even say in, in parts of Afghanistan and sure. drone strikes in Pakistan, mm-hmm. uh, we, we try to displace the blame onto <laughs> the rogue intelligence services of the Pakistanis. All right. Well, you know, let, let me ask this last. Um, I think this this may be uh, our, our last looking at the, the time. Uh-huh. But... Um, because of Pakistan's relationship with China, uh, what, if any, will be the economic impact of Western powers painting Imran Khan as unpredictable? Uh, I, I think that the narrative of his unpredictability is not coming from uh, Beijing and, mm-hmm. and, and, and the East, but it's coming from the Western. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Right. So so I, I don't think I, I think. In fact, if you listen to his first uh, preliminary victory speech, there are two countries, and I think that <laughs> this is maybe why uh, Western media started to grumble about his unpredictability, is that he mentioned two countries that he wanted to improve relations with, and they were, very interestingly enough, Iran and China. Now, that probably doesn't make many Westerners too happy who would have very much preferred, he said, maybe the the usual Pakistani overlords of Saudi Arabia or England or UAE or the United States. Right. Uh, but but so, so these are the countries that he says he wants to improve and deepen relations uh, with. And so I, I don't think for the Chinese... Uh, he's he's new. PTI is certainly a new force, and mm-hmm. I think that's what it needs to be given credit for to break through the monopoly of power that the other two uh, political family dynasties really had in Pakistan is an incredible achievement over the course of the two decades of his political life, and I think that only in that sense he's you know unpredictable in the sense that it'll be prime minister for the first time. Right. But I think in terms of his uh, political consistency on his positions, uh, that's been pretty clear. And I think that uh, the Chinese know that as well. Mm-hmm. Well, I think this is going to be a really um, I think this is a this is a good time. I think it's a good time. A lot of uh, good. Uh, hopefully we'll, we'll come out yes, of this. Yes, inshallah. Absolutely. Yeah, inshallah. Well, we thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. Uh, Radio Sound family, we've been talking with Janaid Ahmed. He is the director of the Center for Middle Eastern Politics and is an assistant professor at the University of Lahore in Pakistan. We thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thank you so much for having me. All right, Radio Islam family, we're going to take a short break. Uh, we'll be back in just a moment. This is Radio Islam on WCEV 1450 AM. Syrian Community Network, with offices nationwide, 
serves its Chicago area clients from its Northside location located at 5439 North Broadway. They provide housing, social services, education, basic human needs, and food security. The Syrian Community Network has Arabic-speaking staff and is a partner organization of the Illinois Coalition for Immigrant and Refugee Rights. You can get more info by calling area code 872-806-0141. That's area code 872-806-0141 or by visiting their website at syriancommunitynetwork.org. A boy born in Joplin, Missouri was fascinated by anything with wheels and a motor. The odds of him going on to fascinate millions with his talent, one in 260,000. The odds of him having 15 career NASCAR victories, one in 1.7 million. The odds of a child being diagnosed with autism, one in 88. I'm Jamie McMurray, and my niece has autism. Learn more at autismspeaks.org slash signs. Brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council. My name is Sue Smith. I'm 38, and I work at a graphic design company. And the teenage me would tell you I wouldn't be into drawing and art if it wasn't for Big Brother's Big Sisters. My big sister showed me early on that I could do anything. And to the young me... That meant a lot. My big sister's name is Sheila, and Sheila is the reason that this 8-year-old grows up to have an amazing job as a graphic designer. Whether you donate money or time, you're helping Big Brother's Big Sisters help a child. Start something today at BigBrothersBigSisters.org. Brought to you by Big Brother's Big Sisters and the Ad Council. Radio Islam, the nation's first daily live call-in talk radio show produced by Muslims for the mainstream market. Radio Islam, on the air since 2004 because of your generosity. Radio Islam salutes its most valuable asset, you, our listener. From our producers to our interns, we appreciate your support. Thank you. Welcome back. Welcome back to Radio Islam. This is your host, Tariq el and we are broadcasting on WCEV 1450 AM, streaming at WCEV1450.com. Remember, folks, you can keep up with us by following our pages on Instagram and Twitter. We're at Radio Islam USA. Make sure you like our page on Facebook at Radio Islam USA and subscribe to the podcast wherever you get yours at. So if that's iTunes, TuneIn, SoundCloud or Google Play, you will find us at Radio Islam USA. Um, where do we go? Where do we go? I seem like I was getting myself lost here. Um, <laughs> all right. So we had a we had a well, right now uh, there is a. Uh, there was a march that took place, an anti-violence march, which um, began on the Lakeshore Drive on the north side and ended over at Wrigley Field. And this uh, was really interesting the way that this came about because uh, there was some resistance in the fact that uh, it seems that uh, Mayor Emanuel um, agreed with the march, right, that the march should take place. And uh, there were some folks who said that, you know, well, if he's if he is in favor of the march, then... Uh, you know, that kind of throws away some of the, you know, it becomes a parade, right? Uh, as a matter of fact, this was um, uh, Reverend Ira uh, Acri 
uh, from the West Side's uh, Greater St. John Bible Church. Uh, and he said he's one of the organizers. And he says if he's in favor, favor of it, it becomes a parade. He says we're on serious business, right? This is not something that we're looking to have sanctioned by the uh, by those who are in who are in power. Right. So we're looking to um, we're looking to energize those who who are not really aware of what's going on, who may feel uh, a sense of comfort of of comfort. As a matter of fact, one of the signs that was up uh, that was being held, it says Emmanuel and Pritzker are co-opted African-American elected officials. Is that what it says? Officials. I think so. Yes. So. There is an there is a, a there's an, a sentiment which which says that those who have the ability to put policies in place, to put resources uh, in communities that will uh, affect the violence uh, that is taking place in these communities are not really doing all that they can. So the march was uh, well, a couple of the, the organizers, um, uh, St. Tobias, Father Flager, um, uh, T.O. Hardiman. Uh, who is from? Well, he just he was in the uh, he was in the gubernatorial uh, Democratic primary, uh, but he is with the uh, violence interrupters. Uh, used to be of ceasefire, and also Reverend Gregory Livingston of the Coalition for a New Chicago. So they think the idea behind them marching on the north side, as opposed to marching on the south side in one of these communities that would be that we would associate with that violence instead of being over in Inglewood or Garfield Park or, uh, or Chatham or in any other neighborhood that we would associate with, with this violence, they said, no, we're going to go to the north side. We're going to go to those communities that we see that are representative of investment, that are representative of social services or mental health services or having all the things that are required for a, for, for, for stability uh, and well-being. Um, we're going to go to a community where we're not looking at folks who are earning the minimum wage or working two and three three jobs. So we're going to a community that is not affected. They're not dealing with this on a daily basis. They're not dealing with violence. And speaking of that violence, uh, one of the milestones that we are certainly uh, regretful and mournful to hear is that we have surpassed the 300 mark uh, with regard to homicides in Chicago uh, this year. So we have surpassed a 300 mark, and that's according to uh, reporting that the Chicago Tribune, I believe, uh, has been doing. So we're at 304 homicides uh, right now. Now, what we should know with regard to when most of these homicides take place, uh, the majority take place on weekends, and during the later hours of the day, so in in the evening, and this is this is critical with regard to, and we're not, we don't have, um, we're not getting into who is committing the homicides as far as the age range, right? But we know that we have a sizable number of younger people that are involved in in these homicides, either in committing them or being the victims um, of of this violence. So that says that it's not just enough for us to count those who are falling, but it's also incumbent upon us as a um, as a community, as as a city to address the root causes of that violence. So uh, the organizers um, well, two of the organizers, they said that we have to we're, we're taking it to the north side. Right. Because 
uh, the, we're drawing attention to the violence and corruption, and lack of economic investment in African-American communities in the city. And if there is no if there is no economic investment, then there's 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 no stability stability where there's no uh, there are no social services in place where mental health services are not in place. All of these things, uh, we begin to see the uh, the effects. We, we begin to see the outcome of the lack of those things. So one of the questions we put out on on social media earlier was uh, I'm not going to give it to you verbatim, but it was basically. Does the inconvenience that these folks on the north side uh, in, in a community that is not known for, that is not afflicted with the, uh, the stain of, of, of habitual violence, right? Um, are these communities, are they going to look at the disruption of their normal uh, traffic pattern? Are they going to see this as a wake-up call or are they going to see this as a nuisance? Are they going to see this as you're bringing a problem that does not affect me? Uh, should not be brought to me into my neighborhood, um, or are they going to see this as you know as a sign that I need to be more mindful that the city or my community it goes beyond you know where I call call home it goes beyond the the neighborhood that I feel secure in uh, because there is no what we don't look at is we don't look at the the, the runoff of crime you know any disease. Uh, in the body, you know, begins at a particular point and unchecked, it will spread, right? That's just the way, that's the way sickness, that's the way illness works. And if, we, if we see poverty and we see uh, violence, which is often associated with poverty um, and in any other uh, socially, you know, detrimental uh, behavior and condition, if we see these things connected and we see them pouring out beyond beyond the, the, the borders that we think that they are contained within, if we see them as encroaching, eventually, eventually, you know, they will be at our doorsteps in one fashion or another. Um, if we see them in that light, then we see our answer to those questions is the disruption of my traffic pattern, uh, is the disruption of my, of my drive time. Uh, is this frustration enough for me? Does it simply end after the march and I can drive on? Or am I going to actually do what I can? Right? Am I, am I going to actually do something? So that's what we want to, uh, that's what we want to go to. Right? I think that's the most important question. The march is it, great to bring attention to these issues, right? Because we've, we've been dealing with these same issues year after year after year after year. Uh, calling out politicians, Right. That's 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 one thing. Right. Uh, but the other part is, what are we going to do uh, as community members? What are we going to do as citizens? And whether we live in these areas or not, we have to answer this question. And after we answer the question, we have to commit to an action. So I'm going to say that we start by answering. We start by looking at what are the organizations that are providing services in these communities um, and quite often we'll find that we have organizations that are well-meaning uh, and hard-working individuals, but they do not have the capacity to really work and serve at the level that is needed in those communities. So on top of the city offering or allocating the necessary financial uh, resources, uh, but we also have to have the human capital, the human resources. So that's 
that's that's what I'm going to put out there for us to think about. How can we support? Look for those organizations. And I'm sure if we do a, you do a Google search, um, you look on Twitter, you search the hashtags, you will find out who is doing what, and and make it a point to reach out. Whether we can you can support financially, and I say we right, whether we can support financially or we can support. With time, whether that be an hour, two hours, you know, a week or hour, a month, whatever it is. But there is something that each of us can do to impact, uh, impact the the violence that is taking place. Um, so I'm going to leave that there. And. Yeah, I'm going to leave that there. Right. I think I think that's enough. Right. We don't make it uh, overbearing uh, too much. So we're going to go ahead and take a short break. When we come back, we're going to talk about what. Uh, White House Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders did not say, right? So this is Radio Slam. We'll be back in just a minute. is hard on every member of the family, but your family is not alone. If you're struggling with your mortgage, there is help. To learn about the government's Making Home Affordable program, visit makinghomeaffordable.gov or call 1-888-995-HOPE to speak to a HUD-approved housing counselor. It's free of charge. Visit makinghomeaffordable.gov or call 1-888-995-HOPE today. Brought to you by the U.S. Treasury, HUD, NeighborWorks America, and the Ad Council. Is that a faucet running? That's not a faucet. That's a river rushing through the forest. Forest rivers provide over 100 million people with clean water to drink. What? I can't hear you because of the vacuum. That's not a vacuum. That's the trees in the forest cleaning up the air we breathe. I didn't know the trees were so amazing. Yep, and the forest gives us shade, trees to climb. That's awesome. Let's go explore some more. Visit the forest today and enjoy all it does just for you. To learn more about the forest and find one near you, go to discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. Hola, my name is Esperanza. After a tragic incident, I was forced from a life of riches in Mexico to a life of poverty in the United States. My mother has become ill and we have become separated from our family. Now I must work for both of us to try to bring the rest of our family together. My name is Esperanza and I am trying to survive. Explore new worlds. Read my story in the novel Esperanza Rising by Pam Muñoz Ryan. For other great book ideas, visit your local library or log on to literacy.gov. Brought to you by the Library of Congress and the Ad Council. Welcome back. Welcome back to Radio Islam. This is your host, Tariq el We are broadcasting on WCEV 1450 AM, streaming at WCEV1450.com. Remember, you can find us on social media, and you can find us wherever you get your podcast at Radio Islam USA. That's at Radio Islam USA. So make sure you subscribe. Make sure you're following us. All right, good people. Um, today, I guess this was today, right? This is all the rage in the in the in the news uh, cycle today, uh, and that is White House press secretary um, responded to, or really her lack of response to CNN's uh, Jim Acosta, who pleaded with her to speak out against the term President Donald Trump 
has been using and she would not. And that is him characterizing the press as the enemy of the people, of the, of the people, excuse me. Uh, and she refused to do so. So refused to to directly uh, address that. And this is uh, this is this is disheartening uh, on a, on a few on a few different levels. And I, I'll address this from just from the from the the, the basis point, uh, being that we rely on. Um, and understand, I'm, I'm going to give a, a little, little caveat to this. We can always go deeper. Uh, as a matter of fact, we talked about this, I think, a few days ago. We can always go deeper with our historical relationship with the media and how it has been used to castigate and cast uh, certain uh, segments of the population uh, in a negative light, right, to create bias and prejudice. But in, the, uh, in, in a very idealistic sense, the function of the press as the uh, the watchdog, right, is the fourth estate of the people, then um, when it is attacked, then the people itself, their their ability to decide for themselves to discern what is going on, that is attacked. Let's take a listen to this uh, short video clip. Uh, on Sarah's question from NPR, she asked you about Ivanka Trump's statement that the press is not the enemy of the people. And she asked you whether or not the press is the enemy of the people. You read off a laundry list of your concerns about the press and and things that you feel like are misreported, but you did not say that the press is not the enemy of the people. And I I, I think it would be a good thing if you were to say right here uh, at this briefing that the press, the people who are gathered in this room right now, uh, doing their jobs every day, asking questions of officials like the ones you brought forward earlier, are not the enemy of the people. I, I think we we deserve that. I think the president has made his position known. I also think it's ironic. I'm I'm trying to answer your question. I I politely waited and I even called on you despite the fact that you interrupted me while calling on your colleague. I said it's ironic. Which is why I interrupted. I'm trying. But if you you finish, if you would not mind letting me have a follow-up, that would be fine. It's ironic. Jim, uh, that not only you and the media attack the president for his rhetoric uh, when they frequently lower the level of conversation in this country. Repeatedly, repeatedly, the media resorts to personal attacks without any content other than to incite anger. Uh, The media has attacked me personally on a number of occasions, including your own network, said I should be harassed as a life sentence, that I should be choked. ICE officials are not welcomed in their place of worship and personal information is shared on the Internet. When I was hosted by the Correspondents Association, of which almost all of you are members of, you brought a comedian up to attack my appearance and call me a traitor to my own gender. In fact, as I know, um, I'm as far as I know, I'm the first press secretary in the history of the United States that's required Secret Service protection. The media continues to ratchet up the verbal assault against the president and everyone in this administration. And certainly we have a role to play, but the media has a role to play for the discourse in this country as well. If I may follow up, if I may follow up, excuse me, you did not say in the course of those remarks that you just made that the press is not the enemy of the people. Are we to take it from what you just said? We all get put through the ringer. We all get put in the meat grinder in this town and you're no exception. And I'm sorry that that happened to you. I wish that 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 had not happened. But for, for the sake of this, this room, the people who are in this room, this democracy, this country, all the people around the world are watching what you're saying, Sarah, and the White House for the United States of America 
the President of the United States should not refer to us as the enemy of the people. His own daughter acknowledges that, and all I'm asking you to do, Sarah, is to acknowledge that right now and right here. I, I appreciate your passion. I share it. Um, I've addressed this question. I've addressed my personal feelings. I'm here to speak on behalf of the President. He's made his comments clear. Sarah. You know, um, that's, you know, that, that's just a bunch of nonsense. She is, she is following the same type of logic that Donald Trump has. And that is to turn, to make her individual concerns greater than the concerns of the people. She's talking about how she has been harassed and she has been called out and rightfully so, rightfully so, because she has stood in front of people and her, 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 her go-to line is, I have, we have addressed this in detail before. And, and it's absolutely not true. Whatever the question is, the, the position has not been made clear. Whatever she has addressed, whatever she claims to have addressed, it has not been addressed. But it's just a statement that you can make to push off a concern or question that's been brought to you by, in, by anybody in the press corps and you're able to move on. Yes, she has been, she has been characterized or described as having um, a, a husk of a soul left because of the, the frequent lies that she has told to, to the faces of the people. So I have, so obviously Sarah uh, Huckabee Sanders is in her feelings right now, and her feelings matter much like President Donald Trump is in his feelings. And because of that, his feelings matter more than the institution that has uh, that has sustained and separated and been very much, regardless of its of its frailties and its misuse at times, uh, but it stood as a as a standard uh, uh, for for others to aspire to with regard to our uh, to the free speech that we we do enjoy, but not so much just the free speech, right? Because well, that's 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 a, another conversation, much more uh, a very layered conversation as to what free speech means and the response to it, but. The fact that we have a press that is supposed to be free. And I'll say this, much like our law enforcement, our police departments, on an individual level, I think like those officers, I think most of the reporters, most of the journalists uh, that we have, they are doing it out of a sense of uh, there, there is a, a genuine sense of service um, and, and, and nobility that they look to uh, attain um, a, a service, you know, of humanity that they that they enter into those fields with. Now, separate the individual from the the policy, from the the the, the structure of the, the the systems, the organizations themselves. Now, how those admi- are administered, that's a completely different thing. But on a base level, once again, to not make that statement to say that the press is not the enemy of the people. That is very much um, that is very much in line with pushing us towards towards this totalitarianism, this dictatorship, uh, this one voice, this one party, and it it should disgust people. Ibrahim. Assalamu alaikum. Like Muslim. That's really uh, quite shocking. I guess there's yeah. a few takeaways from that, though. Mm-hmm. The first takeaway. Is that her? By her answer, it seems like it's just personal. 
Yeah, very personal. Like very, she's holding a personal grudge. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously some of the things that people said about her were inappropriate or whatever, but I don't think the press as a whole is responsible for those things, you know? Right. Um, which it just doesn't make sense. Um, this is what is called in politics and, and the public media image and everything. It's a freebie, right? Yeah. Like all you have to do is just say no. They're not the enemy of the people. I didn't mean, but she wouldn't do that. Mm-hmm. And that's just really um, strange. Say it, man. It's sad. And alarming, too, for a couple of reasons. Mm-hmm. The first reason is that it seems like it's playing right into um, the elements of the fringe right wing, which yep. have a deep hatred for what they call the MSM, the mainstream media. Mm-hmm. Um, and their whole worldview revolves around this notion that the mainstream media is, you know, hiding the truth and against them and against white males, of course, mm-hmm. the most oppressed, whatever. Yeah. Um, and it seems like she's playing right into almost like she's catering to that. I think so. I, I think so. And I think that um, that as she takes a position that she has, uh, it, it erodes a... It, it takes away from us having a respect for contending viewpoints. Uh, and, and this idea, once again, having a a, a base, uh, a, an electorate who believes that there's only one source for uh, for truth, that there's only one, uh, one party that is going to be honest with them. And that, I mean, when, once you get to that point, it's 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 just yeah I'm I'm almost I'm almost like at a at a at a loss of word a loss for words right now because I, I just it can't believe shocking. she just did that right it is it's shocking because also because of the First Amendment itself yeah First Amendment mentions the press by name yeah right yeah. so the founders of this country say what you want about them they knew the importance that that played the, the importance of a free press. Mm-hmm. Um, in building and maintaining a democracy, yeah. right? And to see someone who represents the president of the United States get up there mm-hmm. and imply that the press is the enemy of the people right. um, because she's not willing to say the opposite, mm-hmm. you know, um, that is incredibly shocking. Yeah, and, and there's something else, and we'll, we may we may get into this uh, in the future at some point, but we know within the, the idea of having a free press there is the assumption of choice that comes along with that, but we also know that the economic, um, the economic connection that exists, or the the platform that the free press exists on, uh, has been one where you know you got to have money if you're going to have a press. So, the the voice behind the money, the thinking behind the money, it influences the reporting. It influences what makes a front page, and it, so it influences the public thinking. Uh, what they are doing, what they're doing it, within this, is they're taking away the the reality, but they're also taking taking away the illusion that we that there is some choice. They're taking away the illusion that there are actual contending uh, viewpoints. And I know that could sound like a cynical uh, <laughs> yeah, you idea. Know, it actually, what she said, it pairs very well with what President Trump himself said, uh, I think it was a couple of weeks ago at a rally, yeah. where he basically, I'm paraphrasing, he basically told people, you know, you can't believe what you, what you hear and what you see, right? Yeah, or, or, like or, or a, Orwellian. A very uh, Orwellian, right. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, who you gonna believe? Uh, th- this is from a from an old. I think, as a matter of fact, I think it was a delirious Eddie Murphy, one of his bits, um, the cheating cheating husband, and he says, "Who you gonna believe, me or your lying ass?" Hmm. Uh, and that's what I immediately thought of when I heard Trump. Yeah, and and by the way, this is not to say that we blindly follow the media, right? Right. Um, I'm Muslim. You're Muslim. You're African American and Muslim. Mm-hmm. We know that the media can have. Uh, some at times a very insidious role to play in things and the way things are portrayed. Mm-hmm. But to create a notion that you can't believe what you see and what you hear, and by the way, only what we, the government, tell you, right. that's what reality is, right. that's the problem. You know, like they, they took a problem mm-hmm. with media bias and they provided the worst possible solution, which is to say, we are your media. Mm-hmm. The government is like your media, your source for news and your source for reality, mm-hmm. which is just a, a ridiculous and incredibly harmful attempt at a solution. And it also mirrors the the nations that we look at who have state-run media. And you know, we say you don't have a free press. You got state-run media. And it puts us on the, on the same level, on the same track. So, yeah, but once again, I go back to say that the individuals, I believe the individuals that have, uh, that have put themselves on, you know, uh, on the line to report, to investigate, I think that the individuals do so. With the uh, with the sense of sincerity, uh, to inform the people. Now we can have a larger conversation around um, what it looks like on us uh, systemically, what it looks like um, organizationally. Uh, these conglomerates have taken control of the products of the of the efforts of those individuals. Right now, that's 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 a different conversation. Um, but I still say, and I'm still I'm shocked and and I'm and I'm, and I'm upset. I'm I'm frustrated that we have an administration now that has taken that kind of stance and is energizing um, portions of our uh, of, of the citizenry to have this very myopic uh, viewpoint as to what is to be accepted and what is to be rejected so it's just it just it it tears at the fabric of of democracy and discourse so that's that folks um, we will see you tomorrow night. Uh, tomorrow night we're having a great discussion that's movie talk uh, with uh, my good friend Bubba Murray we're talking about Luke Cage did he run from a fight find out what that fight is All right. so we want to thank our engineer over at uh, WCEV Leonard thank you very much sir we thank our engineer in studio the impressive one Ibrahim Beg I'm your host Tariq Alameen producers for the evening have been Ibrahim Beg Tariq Alameen our executive producer is Abdul Malik Mujahid we remind you that the views expressed by the host and our guests are theirs and not to be taken as a representation of Sound Vision Foundation with that folks we're going to leave you as we greet you. Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you.